From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. Hello and welcome to the Diz Unplugged Disneyland Edition, episode 379 for the week of December 4th, 2014. I'm your host, Michael Bowling. In commemoration of Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day on December 7th, I've been speaking with Disney historian David Lesjak, author of the book Service with Character, the Disney Studio and World War II, about how Walt Disney and the studio employees supported the United States and its allies during World War II. In part one of our conversation, David and I talked about the effects the United States' entry into the war had on the studio. In part two, we continue our discussion about how the studio focused its artistic efforts on supporting our servicemen and women. Now, in 1942, Walt Disney also secured the rights for a story, The Gremlins, by uh, Royal Air Force Flight Lieutenant Roald Dahl, who's probably best known for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And in his story, these creatures tampered with RAF airplanes during dogfights with the Germans because the British destroyed the gremlins' habitat when building an airfield. But the pilots and gremlins ultimately reconciled and joined forces to fight the Nazis. So how did the gremlins come to Walt Disney's attention? Um, There was a fellow that worked out of the uh, British um, Air Ministry that contacted Walt Disney and, and basically said, you know, you should, you should check out this manuscript. And I believe we sent him a copy of the, the manuscript of the whole story. And uh, Disney sent a letter saying, you know, thank you very much. And then the next day, Disney contacted Roald Dahl, and they entered into an agreement where Disney would try to produce a film based on Dahl's story. And you're absolutely right. So the premise of the story is, you know, gremlins live in the, the, the wooded areas, and the, the British Royal Air Force came along, and they chopped down the trees and basically destroyed the gremlins' habitat in order to build um, um, uh, an, air, an, air, an air base. And um, so that created conflict, and the gremlins vowed revenge. And so whenever the British flyers went up, they would, they would tamper with the airplanes. So they would, they would freeze up the carburetor, or they would make the flaps not work, or they would make uh, you know, the carburetor stick open or stick closed or something like that. And at the end, the, the two sides reconciled, and they became friends. So it was a real struggle for Disney and his artists to try to come up with, with, uh, with a film. And there were some acrimonious exchanges between Dahl and Walt Disney as well, you know, almost, I think, to the, the, the level of uh, Traverse and Mary Poppins. Um, you know, Walt Disney needed to secure copyright for the unpublished manuscript. So what they did was they shot the manuscript around to several different magazine publishers and finally, Cosmopolitan decided to run it, I believe, in 1942. And so, you know, Al Dempster and Bill Justice, they created all of the, uh, the illustrations for the magazine article. And they didn't draw, in Rold's opinion, the proper type of hats on, on the gremlins. Uh, Dahl wanted derby hats on the gremlins. And, and Disney put sort of, you know, Canadian toques with their little horns sticking out the side. And Dahl hated that. And then another bone of contention was the, the characters were used in a Lifesavers advertisement, and Dahl was supremely choked about that, and he wrote a, a very severely, he wrote a letter to Walt Disney severely reprimanding him, saying, you know, why are you trying to cash in on this? And, and Walt Disney sort of curtly replied, we're not trying to cash in on anything. Matter of fact, we're not making any money. What we're trying to do is establish copyright to the characters. 
And the way that you do that is by publishing that information. So there was a little bit of uh, heated discussions between the two. Now, Disney and his artists really struggled with the concept of the Gremlins. They couldn't really get a story put together. So it was going to be a short, then it was going to be a live action with cartoon characters, and then it was going to be a feature, and then it was finally scrapped because they just couldn't figure out um, a plausible plot or story or, or figure out what to do with it. The other problem was Gremlins wasn't just a rolled doll and a Walt Disney Studio commodity. Other studios were putting out feature-length films and, and short cartoons with Gremlin characters in it. So Walt Disney was really afraid, well, hey, you know, the public's going to become oversaturated with this Gremlin lore, and by the time we get our product out, they're not going to be interested. So Roy Disney actually contacted people like Walter Lance, Leo Schlesinger. Um, he contacted the head of RKO um, because all of those studios had Gremlin products in production or being distributed. And Walt Disney wanted Roy to approach those people to say, hey, you know, do you have very much more in the pipes or can you hold off on putting anything more into production because we're doing this and we've already spent $50,000 on it and before we sink another, you know, half a million dollars to put this thing into production, we want to make sure that there's going to be a market for it. And um, eventually Disney just decided, you know what, we, we can't figure out what we're going to do with this, so we're going to shelve it. And they shelved it and nothing more was done. Luckily for collectors and, and historians and researchers, there's a wealth of, of information out there. So there's all of Roald Dahl's letters exchanged between him and Walt Disney, um, which I include in my book. I include quite a bit of that information in the book. And then there's also memorabilia. So there was a Gremlins book that was produced in, in America, England, and Australia. Um, there were widget dolls and Fifinella dolls and Gremlin dolls that were put into very, very, very limited production. Uh, there was a puzzle. There were some luminous pictures. Um, there was a little booklet that was done for the Army Air Force Training Command that features spanduels. Spanduels were the winter cousin. So the way the gremlin species works is the gremlin was the male, the Fifinella was the female, the widgets were their offspring, and the spanduels were the winter cousins. So the spandules operated at elevations 20,000 feet up in the atmosphere, and what they did was they would freeze the carburetor or freeze the flaps on the airplanes um, while the gremlins worked at the lower, the, the, the lower altitudes. And actually, Cicinella eventually became the mascot of the women Air Force service pilots. Now, the wasp, you know, people should go look into their history. You know, these brave women ferried broken airplanes to repair depots, and then they flew every manner of airplane from single prop jobs to bombers to experimental jets at the end of the war from, embark uh, from the plants to the embarkation points. They were jet test pilots. The jets weren't obviously used in the war, but all the other planes were. So you had these lady pilots that were flying B-17s and B-24s and B-26s, as well as fighter, pilots, you know, the fighter planes like the P-51 and the P-47. And what's sad about the, the WASP is that they were never accorded full military rights like their male counterparts were. So if a WASP was killed flying some junky airplane that had just come back from overseas to a repair depot, or if they were shot down towing a target so that the guys on the ground could practice their anti-aircraft, you know, sighting and shooting, and they accidentally hit the plane that she was flying in and she crashed and died, they were never accorded the same rights as the military men that were flying. So they never got a military pension. They weren't given a military funeral. They weren't really recognized until 
It was just not too long ago, I think 10 years ago, or within the last 10 years, where they were finally recognized properly for the contribution that they had made during the war, because they freed up a lot of men. There was right. over, I think there was over a thousand, I can't remember the exact number, but I think it was over a thousand women served in the WASP. So those thousand women freed up a thousand men who could go on the uh, fight on the front lines. And um, like I said, they towed tow targets, they towed broken planes, and then they, they flew the big, powerful planes from the plants to the embarkation points to get them overseas. <laughs> so they had, uh, they wrote to Walt Disney, Bird Granger was her name. Um, she was in one of the first graduating classes, and she wrote Walt Disney asking permission for, for a mascot, and they responded back with, uh, with the Fifanella. And the Fifanella is still used today by the post-war WASP organization. They still use... Uh, the emblem on their stationery and in their newsletter, that sort of thing. Now, there's been a persistent story about Mickey Mouse being the password for the landings on the D-Day invasion of Europe. But you discovered this wasn't necessarily the case during your research. No, and, you know, bad me. When my, my, book, my book was originally published under the name Tunes at War back in 2000, and I repeated that falsehood that Mickey Mouse was the password for the Normandy invasion. But in actual fact, it turns out, you know, I contacted Dave Smith at the studio, and he said, no, they've contacted every, every archive everywhere in North America, and they find no reference at all. There's nothing in the company archives that references Mickey Mouse being used as the password. There's nothing in any of the presidential libraries. There's nothing at the National Archives. There's nothing. So I mistakenly repeated the falsehood that, yes, Mickey Mouse was used as the password for the D-Day, the June 6, 1944 invasion of France. And then my friend and fellow researcher, Michael Barrier, who's a fantastic guy, and, and he's got a couple of great books out there that people should read as, as well, uh, Walt Disney Animated Man, or an An Animated Life of Walt Disney, I think, is his book. But um, he's written some great books. Well, he discovered a newspaper clipping from 1944 that basically says that Mickey Mouse was the password for some naval officers that they had to whisper in order to get some, some access to the base that they were at. So somehow that grew into the legend that it was the overall password for the, the D-Day invasion when in fact it was just used at one base on a base level. But um, it was interesting. Michael actually found a newspaper article that he shared with me and then I I went off and looked on some newspaper archive sites that I use, and I found a couple of corresponding articles that were based on that first one. So that seems to be where Mickey Mouse was used. It was used at a, a base in England on a very low level, local level, and it was not the, uh, the password for the entire invasion. <laughs> Now, with the unconditional surrender of Germany on May 8th, 1945, and Japan's surrender on August 15th, 1945, the um, World War II came to an end. So how soon did the Walt Disney Studio return to normalcy? Well, I think it, I think it took a long time because the problem that the studio ran into was, um, you know, they, they could start releasing their films in Europe, but, but Europe was broken. You know, most of the major European cities had suffered huge damage at the hands of the Germans and at the hands of the Allies as well, bombing campaigns. You know, if, if your city happened to be producing something that was important to the enemy war machine, then it was on the receiving end of, of massive bombing raids. You know, the city of Dresden was wiped out. The city of Berlin was, was pretty much wiped out. Um, and there was a lot of European cities that, that had that same fate. You know, Warsaw was obliterated off the map. Um, so 
slowly but surely the studio was was eventually able to reestablish their distribution network in Europe and 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 get those films going. The other problem, because because of the flow of money and the supply of money, any profit that the company made overseas, overseas, a lot of those countries restricted the flow of money outside of the outside of the country. So if you made money in England, you weren't allowed to take very much of that money out of England. The English wanted that money to remain there to help stimulate the economy. And so what Disney did was he started, you know, he started up a production unit, and eventually, as we know, he shied away uh, from animated features and he got into live action films. So that's when that's when he decided, you know, Rob Roy and and um, uh, what is it, The Sword and the Rose. Um, anyhow, there was four. Oh, that story of Robin Hood, Treasure Island. Yes, yes. So yeah. all of those films were made in England because of the restriction on removing currency from the country. So eventually, you know, little by little, the the company started to to find their feet again and and was able to to get back to some some sense of normalcy, if you will. But it, it did take them several years because just because of the the state that Europe was in with its infrastructure and and um, you know Europe was really a, a, a broken country at that point in time, you know. And, and then Disney eventually got into making the the um, the True Life Adventure series, you know, 1949, Seal Island, that was the first one, and that was such a great film. Um, you know, the very first sort of True Life Adventure, I say, goes back to one of the good neighbor travelogues that he did, which came about partly because of his trip down to South America earlier in the war. He did one called The Amazon Awakens, and that, that film was done in 1944, and it was basically a tour of the Amazon River Basin, and I think that sort of set the, uh, uh, not the standard, but set in motion his idea of, well, maybe we can do other sort of nature-type films. And then in 1949, we've got Seal Island, which was a true-life adventure, which, you know, 27-minute short, and it was in color, and it won an Academy Award. And that led, led, that led to all the others. And then, you know, it wasn't too long after the war. It was literally three years after the war ended. It was in uh, 1948, the spring of 1948, Walt Disney made made plans for a Mickey Mouse park, you know. So as early as 1948, he had already been thinking of, you know, some sort of a little quote unquote kitty park, and mm-hmm. we all know that that eventually metamorphosized into into Disneyland. Mm-hmm. So and and well, and also it, all the training films he did led to their educational and sort of industrial films. Yeah, I don't think they did too many of them. I know they did uh, films for Texaco and, and a few other companies, but I think that he, he eventually shied away from that and, and he got more into the sort of live-action feature-length films. You know, it's interesting to, to sort of chronicle Disney, the Disney company's his history and the visionary that Walt Disney was because, you know, you start off with these little black-and-white cartoons and then you synchronize sound to them and then they go from gags to having plots and stories and then... You add music and the personality animation, and then and then you add color, and then well, let's go from shorts to features, and then from features to you know you do live action, and then you do live action and cartoon, and then you go to Disneyland, and it's interesting because I've got a copy of the Pete Martin interviews, and it's about 20, 22 hours worth of interviews that Pete Martin did with Walt Disney in 1961. And I've been listening to them in the car to and from work this past week just because I'm trying to locate something for another project that I'm working on. It's a quote that I want to try to find. But it, it's interesting because 
Walt Disney said explicitly to Pete Martin, I don't want to do any sequels. I'm not interested in doing sequels. Sequels reminds me of the past, and it's based on a past product that I've done. I don't want to be working in the past. I want to be looking forward to the future. If I spend my time making a sequel to Snow White or a sequel to The Three Little Pigs, then that meant I wasn't able to devote that money and resources to something else moving forward that I wanted to do. And, and I just think that's, uh, th that, that's interesting. If you look at how the company has developed, you know, and through the war years, the adversity, you know, Disney almost went bankrupt during the war years. He owed over a million dollars. He was like $1.2 million in debt at one point in time. People go a million dollars today, well, that's nothing. A house can cost you a million dollars. But you have to put it in the context of 1940 dollars. And um, he almost went belly up. If it wasn't for the government work that he had just to keep his operation up and running and keep the staff employed, I think that the Disney studio would have folded or he would have had to have gone to one of the larger studios like Columbia or RKO, Universal, MGM, whoever, take your pick, and he would have had to have, have sold out and become a producer working for somebody else. <laughs> yeah, I know they were counting on Cinderella. Yes. to really yes. turn things around, which it did. Yes. So Now, in, in addition to your book, Service with Character, the Disney Studio, and World War II, you also worked with the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco's Historic Presidio on their display of the uh, Disney Studios World War II exhibit. So how did you become involved with the museum? Um, there were three people that were sort of the creative consultants, the the, the main three people that were working with Diane Disney Miller and the family to put together this idea of the museum, and that was Jeff Curdy, uh, Paula Sigmund Lowry, and the late Bruce Gordon, Imagineer. And um, I know Jeff. I've known Jeff for quite a long time. And I guess Gallery 6, they couldn't figure out what, what they were going to do with Gallery 6. That was the Warriors. And Jeff said to Diane, well, you should get my friend David involved because he's a subject matter expert and he's got a huge collection. Um, my collection numbers probably close to 300 items, 300 Disney World War II items. So it's home fight items, home front items, combat items, original artwork, and then pieces of memorabilia. So in August of 2007, I got an email from Jeff, and I was on holiday at the time, and he said, oh, expect an email from Diane in the next uh, little while. Um, and I thought, holy cow, Diane Disney Miller is going to email me. How cool is that? You know, being a Disney geek, to have Walt Disney's daughter going to send you an email, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. And so because I was on holiday, it was like every 15, <laughs> every 15 minutes I was checking my email to see if this <laughs> email from Diane had arrived yet. You know, I was like the kid in the candy store, the kid on Christmas morning. I was just, I was really excited. And it arrived a couple of days later, and she basically said that, you know, I've seen some of your work through your website, and I've, um, you know, Jeff Curdy has shown me some of your writing and stuff, and I'd like to know, Ron, my husband and I would like to know, if you would like to come down and see what we're doing with this idea of the museum, take a look at our current holdings, and then decide if maybe you'd like to uh, join us and, and help us out with a Disney World War II exhibit. So, of course, I, you know, was very excited. And I very calmly and coolly sent her an email back, and I said, yes, I would be, I would be delighted to come down to see what you have going on. So um, in November, um, they arranged to, to fly me down, all expenses paid, and I spent a wonderful couple of days with, uh, with Ron and Diane and Michael Labrie and 
Juan and Diane's son, Walter, and um, it was sort of tragic in some respect because Bruce Gordon had passed away just a day or two before I was scheduled to come down. So that changed the dynamic of everything because Jeff, Bruce, and Paula were all supposed to be meeting with me and discussing ideas and that sort of thing. And because of Bruce's death, um, Paula and Jeff declined to come up, and then I ended up spending my whole time with, with basically Diane and Ron. And it was just uh, it was a, a phenomenal visit from my standpoint just to be able to meet with them. You know, the first night when I came in, the, the car took me right to their place, their, their apartment, and we went out for dinner um, around the corner from where they lived, and we had just, it was a two- or three-hour meal, and it was just, that first meeting was just phenomenal. You know, at one point in time, I started throwing out names of people that her father had worked with, like Kay Kamen, for example, and she would relate a little story, and, and near the end of the conversation, she just paid me a real real nice compliment. She said, I'm just, I'm so energized by this conversation. I'm, I'm hearing names that I haven't heard for 30 or 40 years, and you're bringing back all this mem- all these memories, and, and this is just wonderful. The next day, I got a, a tour of their little facility in, on Gorgas, which is a street uh, on the Presidio, and they had this big wooden building, which I thought was just like a fire trap. I thought nice. it must take much for this building <laughs> yes. to go up in flames, right? And they had all this <laughs> phenomenal stuff on display. There was the Lily Bell. There was the, the ambulance like Walt Disney drove in France in World War One. There were all these awards, and, and there was like was either two or three giant displays. I've got pictures of it. There's giant display cases that had his Emmys and his Academy Awards and his special Snow White Academy Award and his his Oscar for the creation of Mickey Mouse. And, you know, you're just standing there looking in awe at all this. You know, they had furniture from his Disneyland apartment. It's, it was, you know, for somebody like me, like I said, a, a Disney geek who's been researching and, and writing and collecting Walt Disney history for 30 years, it was just like, you know, you just stand there and you try not to let the drool run out of the corners of your mouth, right? And so... After that, after my little tour of that facility, they, they took me up to the building number 104, which is in a sad, sad state, and I got to see some of the construction work, and at that point in time, the, the glass infill building was just a huge hole that they had dug, and you could see guys with shovels and a little excavator were undercutting, where they were digging underneath the building in order to put in, eventually that's where the museum was going uh, to put their uh, theater. Um, it was just amazing to see that building when it was still under construction. And so at the end of, uh, I guess it was two days there, you know, we had our hugs and our handshakes, and, and they both said how much they enjoyed their time with me and, you know, vice versa for me, obviously. And, and they just asked if I wanted to help out, and I said, yeah, absolutely, I'll do whatever you want me to do. So it ended up with me loaning them 48 items out of my Disney World War II collection, which were put on display in Gallery 6. And it eventually led to one guest speaking event, which I did in March of 2013 on the history of the Hyperion Studio. And I hope there's there's many more to come. You know, I've given them a list of, of topics that I can speak to, and I've since been told that there might be somebody else that's handling the guest presenter, so I'm going to contact her and send her a letter of introduction. But my relationship with Diane was was fantastic. It wasn't unlike any relationship that she had with any number of other researchers and historians. But to me, it was very special, as I'm sure it is to other people who have been able to experience her, her friendship. Um, you know, we eventually exchanged over. I, I looked at after she passed away. I was just devastated, and I just I, I cried and cried and cried. 
And, you know, I eventually went back and looked, and we had exchanged over 1,200 emails in the, the five years or so that we had, you know, become friends. And she was always extremely gracious. She was very kind. She was very good to my family. She comped me stuff at Disneyland on two trips for me and my family. Um, you know, I, I did a lot of personal research for her. I suggested items that I thought the museum should, should acquire, and I'm happy to say that there's two items that they did go out and buy. One is the, the 1930 Mickey Mouse Club uniform that you see in the big display case with all the 30s Mickey Mouse memorabilia. Mm -hmm. And the other item that I was able to convince her to buy, and it didn't take very much convincing, but in the Hyperion building, I was able to locate the original coat of arms that had been painted on her father's door. And it was a, a Mickey Mouse coat of arms, and it's from about 1933. It came off the door that was on his third office. And I was able to find, because I'm one of the other many projects I'm writing or researching is a book on the history of the Hyperion studio. And I was able to find the son of the man that bought half the Disney property when the brothers sold it after they moved to Burbank. And the side of the property that they had bought was the L-shaped animators building number one, as well as all of the original buildings that were at the front of the property. And it was on one of those doors at the front of the property, Walt's third office, that this coat of arms was, was painted on, and it had been kept all those years. This was the 1960s, um, when the family that owned the property then, the fellow died, and his son, the two sons inherited the business, and they eventually sold it. And before they moved, one of the workers took the door down and cut the coat of arms out and gave it to one of the sons. And so I was able to contact one of the sons, and um, uh, they still had it, and they were they would be interested in selling it if the museum was interested in purchasing it, and, and that's in fact what happened. So my relationship with Diane, you know, I wasn't the only researcher that she befriended or, or helped or paid to do things or maintain correspondence with, but jeepers, it was, for me, it was something really, really, really special, and and, you know, when I learned of her fall and then of her passing, I was just, I was just devastated. She was a direct link to her father, obviously, and she was a wealth of information. Every time I wrote to her, she would always respond back with just these beautiful, beautiful responses. It was never, and I, I tried not to bug her too, too, too much because I know how busy she really was. She did a lot of philanthropic work and then her involvement with the museum and, and all of that. But her responses back to me were never, one or two word responses or one or two sentence responses like you know if i asked her a question about something like kay came in she would send me back you know three four five paragraphs of information and then if i followed up with a with a question then you know she would send me another another response so she was just uh, she was just a beautiful person she, she did a lot of things for a lot of different people and um you know for her to pass away that in, in the manner that she did. It's just, it's just tragic for everybody involved. It is. <laughs> I, I have a funny story about um, Ron Miller and your, your exhibit there because I've, I've spent a lot of time at your exhibit over the last you know, few weeks getting ready for our conversation. And I was reading, I was standing in front of it and I was reading, uh, there's a number of documents that are on display there. And so I'm, I'm there desperately trying to read them because, you know, they're carbon copies and with the lighting, they're difficult to read. And right next to it is that pinup that you talked about, I think, from the dispatch. And it, it very much reminds me of the illustrations from um, Fantasia, some of the fairies 
yeah, and all that, yeah, and and yeah. and from the anyway. So so sort of you know topless kind of things. And yeah, yeah. I didn't realize I knew Ron Miller was in the museum. I'd seen him earlier, but I didn't realize he'd walked up right next to me. And I don't know what he thought I was looking at, but um, he said, "You you you know." these were very controversial to to display. So we had long conversations about this, and I thought, what is he talking about? And then I realized what he was talking about. I said, oh, really? He said, yes, we had many meetings about whether to display these drawings or not. And he said, but I finally won in the end. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, and it's, I rem- it's funny because I remember Diane telling me that too, that, that there was, a, I believe, a company lawyer who wanted that, that artifact removed because it displays a little bit of nudity and it's not it's not you know lewd and oh no not at all or anything like that it was it's it's playful and it's from the time period and it was a takeoff on the pinup girls that were were very the pinup women i should say that were very popular in the day and uh, I remember Diane telling me that story too that yeah there was quite a battle with the company in order to display that but you know what? Ron's a great guy. Ron, Ron is—he—he's uh, a phenomenal guy as well. He's um, every time that I've spent, you know, that I've gone down and spent time with him and him and Diane. It's just been a, a joy and a thrill to be able to talk to them. And and like I said, they were very very generous and of their time and uh, and of their memories and thoughts and stuff. So you know, I'm sure it's 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 extremely tough for him not to have Diane around, but. I'm really glad and excited that he's still maintaining his involvement with the museum, that he, he hasn't sort of cloistered yeah. himself uh, away from everything, and, yeah. and that he's still participating. So that, that's great to hear that he was there. Yeah. Now, how can our listeners learn more about the Disney Studio in World War II and purchase your book? Sure. They can go to my publisher, themeparkpress.com. Uh, it's run by Bob McLean. He's put out a whole series of, of Disney-themed books, and he sort of carved out a niche in the marketplace so kudos to Bob because he's publishing a lot of books that would other, otherwise never see the light of day. He's done a whole bunch of books uh, for Jim Corcus. You know, Jim Corcus might be a great guest for you to have on one day. He's, uh, his knowledge is phenomenal, and, and he's written, a, uh, I don't know, four or five different books for Theme Park Press. Didier Getz has written a book on, mm-hmm. on Walt's uh, trip to Europe in 1935 when Walt and Roy went over. Um, but themeparkpress.com would be a good start. And then also, if people want to join the discussion, I maintain a Facebook group. So if you go to Facebook, sign in, and um, look for the group Disney and the War. So Disney and the War, we, I post stuff there, and we, we have discussions uh, uh, there about uh, what some of the things that Walt Disney was up to during, during the war. Okay. And hopefully one day maybe the book will get into the museum. That would be wonderful. I will certainly push for that. Um, And and we will have all of these links in our show notes. We'll also have a link to the conversation David and I had on the Hyperion Studios um, last year. Yes, yes, and, and, and you know what? Whenever you want to talk about anything from the 1930s, give me a give me a dingle because uh, you know I can certainly speak to the the popularity of the 1930s Mickey Mouse Club or you know merchandising wizard Kay Kamen. Um, if I can do a plug, one of the one of the next books that I'm going to have released probably I was hoping to have it out before Christmas of this year, but it looks like uh, it'll be early next year. Is um, in the service of the Red Cross, and it chronicles. It's a monograph about. 55,000 words that talks about Walt's time, uh, 1918 to 1919, when he was in Chicago, and then when he went off and served his uh, 10 or 11 months with the Red Cross overseas. 
Um, I've done a lot of research on that book. I've discovered a lot of neat stuff. I uncovered 60 letters that were exchanged between Walt Disney and the lady that ran the Red Cross. Her name was Alice Howell. In 1931, they, they renewed their friendship. Um, so there's great insight in those letters. And then my friend Phil Sears, who's uh, a Walt Disney autograph expert, um, it's interesting because I had a fellow contact me who had um, a whole bunch of photographs of Walt Disney in France that have never been published before. Um, so he's given me, you know, I ultimately um, arranged for the sale of all those artifacts to Phil. So I've got probably about eight or ten photographs that have never been published before of Walt Disney in his Red Cross uniform doing things overseas, standing atop of an abandoned tank, picking up an artillery shell in a field, uh, posing at one of the hospitals, posing beside his, um, his truck. Um, and then what's really interesting was shortly after Phil and I consummated that deal, Phil was contacted by somebody else who had another cache of Walt Disney material from, from France. And it included postcards that were exchanged between Walt Disney and his girlfriend at the time and some more photographs. So that was an amazing, amazing trove of material. So that's my next book coming out uh, in the service of the Red Cross. And then I've got two others in various stages of production. One is called uh, Lifetime of Achievement, which looks at all of Walt Disney's 600-plus personal awards. And then the other one is... Um, foundation of an empire which looks at the whole history of the hyperion studio but if you ever want me back on to talk about any of those topics by all means i'm a excellent as you can tell i like to talk i'm, I'm a willing i'm a willing Absolutely. participant for sure so so thank you definitely so oh, you're very welcome so david thank you for taking the time to share your knowledge of the disney studio during the war years with our listeners and as you mentioned, just three years after the end of World War II, Walt began work on an idea for a Mickey Mouse park, which eventually became Disneyland. As Walt said in his opening day dedication, Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America, with hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. So on December 7th, let us be grateful for the men and women who have dedicated their lives to preserving our way of life and fighting tyranny around the world, and find inspiration in Walt Disney's words. Tomorrow will be better as long as America keeps alive the ideals of freedom and a better life. That concludes this segment of The Diz Unplugged. Please listen to our other segments this week. Thank you for listening, and be magical. 